Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week, we feature the popular radio analyst for the Chicago Cubs, Ron Coomer. I was always infatuated, I guess might be the right way to describe of the home run hitters, right, of the game. That, that that was always the guy that I looked at on any team. And, you know, the first one was Rick Monday, who was a great leadoff guy for the Cubs when he came mm-hmm. from Oakland. And I was a big Rick Monday fan and wore number seven on my back. And then it was Dave Kingman who wore number 10. And then guess what little league number I wore, number 10. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, that was my initiation to Cubs baseball and, you know, just, the whole idea of what you loved about Wrigley Field. He's the Coom Dog, the affectionate nickname of the immensely popular sidekick to a longtime play-by-play man, Pat Hughes. Raised on the south side of Chicago, Ron Coomer blossomed into an all-star on the field and in the booth where he's been a keen observer of Cubs baseball since 2014. He's also a restaurateur, Coombs Corner, of course, and established a baseball academy. And if there's one particular trait of Coomer's, he loves to laugh. 
So Ron Coomer, tell me a story I don't know. Thank you very much for the invite. Um, it's very nice of you. We've been friends a long time and I, I appreciate that um, and your friendship. I appreciate our game and I have for a very, very long time. We would go to Wrigley Field. My dad would take me um, as a little guy. Now you're talking about five, six, seven years old. And we would try to get there as early as we could. And, you know, for five minutes, I would get a chance to hawk fly balls in left field. But my dad always wanted to get into the ballpark. And I did too. But I, I wanted to get a hot dog and see Wrigley. I don't know if he just wanted to get a cold beer and a hot dog and go to Wrigley. That all could be yes to all of it. And that's all fine by me. But as a, as a young kid, um, Bruce Suter's rookie year, we get to the ballpark. Um, and my deal was I would shoot right up in from the concourse, right onto the field or by the field where you could see it. And you'd see that bright green and the scoreboard and the green grass and the Ivy and all that. And, and I just was amazed at the way the field looked. I just, it just, it was infectious to me. And every time I saw it, I became a bigger and bigger fan. And then as, as you know, you, you do that a few times then you want to meet the players. Well, we had tickets one time down by the Cubs bullpen. It was Bruce Suter's rookie year. And I go down to the bullpen and I got my glove, right? My dad had bought me this uh, Wilson A2000, which was the cool glove to have uh, for a young kid. And I'm telling you, probably two thirds of the big league players were using that glove. So I go down to the bullpen and, and I'm hanging out and I'm talking before the game to Bruce Suter and, and I'm bothering him, but you know what? I, I'm seven years old. I didn't know. And finally, Bruce Suter comes up to me, and I, will, I want him to sign my glove. And he grabs my glove, and he looks at it. And he goes, here, take a look at mine. We had the exact same <laughs> glove. How about that? Exactly. Broken in the same everything, Turgy. So, you know, so you're like, oh, this is really cool. Well, my dad had told me, when he brought that glove home, now my dad was a truck driver in the inner city and buying that Wilson A2000, it took a lot for our family to get that glove for me. So he made, he told me, if you lose this glove or leave it outside in the rain or ruin this glove, you're going to play shortstop in Little League barehanded. And he meant it. And I did not question my father like that at all. So I'm standing there right at the brick wall, Bruce Suter's right on the other side. And we're, we've exchanged gloves and I'm holding it. And I got, he gave me a baseball and I'm throwing it in there, you know, and it's all cool. And I, you know, my dad's just proud as all hell because we got the same glove and here I'm like an eight year old and, and uh, so all is great. Right. And uh, then all of a sudden Bruce Suter, you know, he starts to hand it back. He goes, Hey, why don't we trade gloves? And I grabbed my glove out of his hand and I go, no way, that's my glove. And my dad <laughs> out of nowhere, right? Wham, I get hit in the shoulder and I get knocked. And he's like, give him the glove. I go, this is my glove. I go, no, no. <laughs> and Bruce Suter's eyes got like this big. He got the old Beetlejuice looking eyes and he's like, this little eight-year-old kid just wouldn't trade gloves with me. And, and I didn't. And that whole day, my dad just kept shaking his head at me like, what the hell's wrong with you, kid? Did I not raise you right? And the whole day, and I just, I was adamant, and I kept the glove. 
And I, you know, and that's just the way it was. And I, I like your spunk. It's like, hey, you know, I'd love to trade with this is mine. Leave it alone. That's my glove. I play shortstop <laughs> with that. I broke that glove in. And you know, I, it just it's one of those things, you know. And so years and years later, as I'm playing now for the Chicago Cubs in 01, you know, we go through all this and um who comes to the ballpark? Bruce Suter, right? Big beard, you know, and, and so I got to introduce myself. I go, how you doing, Bruce? Ron Coomer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, we met before. He goes, really? I go, yeah, I was eight years old or seven. I think I was eight years old. And uh, I go, yeah, you were in the bullpen and we had the same glove, the A2000XL with the closed pocket. And we were going to trade and you offered to trade gloves with me. And I said, no. And my dad never let me forgive it, forget it for the rest of my life until he passed. And that was just one of those stories he would tell about me if we were out somewhere. And he just started laughing. He goes, you probably did good. I wasn't that good a fielder anyway. But it was just so funny to have this deal happen when I was a little kid, to get back to Wrigley Field as a player, and then to meet Bruce Suter. I thought that was really cool. And it's one of those things when I met him, I was just like, this guy's not going to believe this. For those people who do not remember or may not even know, uh, Bruce Suter was a revolutionary reliever yeah. for his time with the split-fingered fastball, which nobody had thrown and now has become a standard in baseball. Now, you also grew up watching Dave Kingman, who I admit, Coomer, I had the displeasure of trying to interview <laughs> because he was one strange bird. But boy, could he hit homers, and there you were outside Wrigley Field one day, and boom. That's it. Way back there. Stay there, baby. Back, 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 back. Hooray! A wave of avenue homer for Dave Kingman. Man, that one was almost on the roof of that building across the street. Boy, did he tag it. Yeah, absolutely. The balls are flying. I, I got a ball from the Kong hit one, you know, over, over the left field uh, bleachers. Uh, and we would only get to go there for just a few minutes. I mean, it wasn't, we would always park somewhere over there, you know, and so that would mean we got to walk through there. And, you know, I always had my glove and my little league hat on or my Cubs hat. So that was the deal. But I was always, um, infatuated I guess might be the right way to describe uh, uh, of the home run hitters right of the game that, that that was always the guy that I looked at on any team and you know the first one was Rick Monday who was a great leadoff guy for the Cubs when he came mm -hmm. from Oakland and Mo who ends up now being a friend hit 32 home runs in the leadoff spot for the Cubs and I was a big Rick Monday fan and wore number seven on my back and then it was Dave Kingman who wore number 10 and then Guess what little league number I wore? Number 10. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was, that was my initiation to uh, Cubs baseball and, you know, just the whole idea of what you loved about Wrigley Field. Um, still to this day, as you know, George, when we get to go there day after day, it still amazes me every time I walk up and see the field and, and just think about playing there, being a little kid sitting in the stand somewhere with my dad years ago, and then now sitting in a booth, you know, maybe the best seat in the house next to Pat. Sometimes, you know, you go, you better pinch yourself because you've been pretty fortunate.
You know, it's really funny because you grew up basically a stone's throw from Midway Airport. And the first thing I'm thinking right. of is, well, you had to grow up a White Sox fan, but that wasn't the case. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And, and it's just by sheer luck. I mean, I was a baseball fan and a baseball kid. Uh, but back then in the 70s, in the early and mid 70s, the White Sox were on Channel 44 and Channel 26, if you remember. And remember the rabbit ears, we'd have to move around and oh, you'd go to the other part. Of the other, so you had your <laughs> two, five, seven, nine, and 11, 11 That's it. and 32. But then right. you had the other one that goes 44 and 20 channel 26, right? <laughs> well, my TV couldn't get those two channels. I could never watch the White Sox. So out of just WGN came in and, you know, Jack Brickhouse was a legend. So I, I love listening to his call of the games and, Hey, Hey was always the call in the house, you know, and um, the Cubs had star players when I was a little kid, like Ernie, Ernie Banks and Ronnie Sano and Billy Williams. And, you know, I was always a Kessinger fan because when I was little, I played short, but I was a Cub fan because you could run home and watch them right after, you know, school got out for the last three innings and, and catch the game. I became a Cub fan because of it. And I'm sure I'm not the only one no, who was a Southside Cub fan because of WGN and, being able to watch. You know, when I said you love to laugh, I wasn't kidding. You have a great sense of humor. So I imagine working alongside Pat Hughes was an easy transition from your time with the Twins, or was it? No, it, it definitely was. Um, working with Pat, first of all, he has a great sense of humor. It's a little dry on the air, but my goal daily is to get him to belly laugh on the air. I got a kick out of your coffee cup that you brought from home today, Ron. No, this was actually given to me by a fan. How about that here at the ballpark? I love what it says on there. Uh huh? <laughs> Fastball is in there for a strike two into a true baseball fan. <laughs> it wrote is that. funny, yeah. School is important, but baseball is importanter. <laughs> <laughs> that is significant or more than anything I've ever heard in my life. Here's a swing and a foul off to the left out of play. Kind of fits right in there with our Des Moines commercial. <laughs> uh, but we've had dead air many times and he can't go to break because I try to get him to laugh to the point where he can't talk. And I won't give him a break like and look away. I just keep trying to get them to laugh until we just, you know, that's just the end and they got a cut. That's, that's, that's my goal day after day. So he does it to me and he cuts me no break because then he'll, so Ron, what did you think of that last pitch? You know, and here I can't even talk and I'm, you know, shoulders are going and I'm laughing and I got the cough button down and he, he'll keep asking me until I answer. So that's kind of one of our little quirky things we do in the booth, but. It was a great transition, George. You saw it since I got here. I mean, Pat is the most generous person you'll ever meet. Um, and being on air with somebody, he wants, you know, you to have every opportunity to say whatever you want to say. And to be honest with you, him and I have been friends for a long time before this. And now we're really close friends. He's no question. He's a great guy and he's a wonderful broadcaster. And you also know that you're working with a guy who has his tongue permanently embedded in his cheek. <laughs> I mean, this is who he is, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, he's, 
he he's he's a unique character and he's he likes to do things a certain way and for me um i'm a person that is very much routine oriented for my playing days and pat is too and that works great for me if he's got quirks or things he likes to do do them we've never really said this but it kind of is what it is we have a great relationship him and i so you're never doing it to try to make the other person look bad to the audience or doing anything like that because i take more shots at myself than i would ever take with pat you arrived yeah. at the right time because a year later here comes joe madden and a flood of victories including the world series and there was that nerve-wracking Game 7 in Cleveland. So tell me a story. I don't know what that evening was like for you. Well, it's it's pretty surreal, I, I have to say. Just getting to the ballpark, I had to be there so early. I think I was there at 1 o'clock to, to get a chance to talk to Joe privately um, for the manager's show. So, you know, once I got to the radio booth and we were sitting there, there was a, a really weird almost eerie tension in the booth that day because we all knew that history was about to be made one way or the other. And, you know, I, I just always felt like in that day, um, for me, the last thing I wanted to do is if we wanted have anything be said or have anything happen that wouldn't be great history for the Cubs, right, for all these years. Mm -hmm. So I think that was probably my one thing. And then as we got into – the final inning um, and the Cubs had a chance to win. Um, I remember, you know, the ground ball hit the Bryant and I remember moving my mic out of the way because I didn't want to say anything or yell over Pat's call. The last thing I wanted to do was be yelling over the call of the Cubs win the world series or the Cubs have done it. As Pat said, they're world series champs. Um, that scared the hell out of me, to be quite honest, because the fan that the, the, that eight-year-old could pop out at any moment oh, and that's... let out a scream. And could you imagine it be right over the Hall of Fame voice of Pat Hughes, the only time in our lifetime we've ever been able to hear that and your eyes screwed it up? Outfielder to the Cubs playing no double zone. Extremely deep in left, Fowler deep in center, Hayward not quite as deep in right. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout. Jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds. The Cubs have done it. Well, you, did, I, you didn't I, do that. I didn't. I didn't. And I felt much better about it. But, you know, so that made me feel very good that we were able to do that and, and be, be a partnership together. I'm very proud to be um, one of the guys, one of the two people that called the World Series Game 7 for the Chicago Cubs. That's something um, I have in my possession, our call, and um, World Series ring, and um, just very, very proud to, to be that guy. So what got you interested in going from the field to the booth because your career behind the mic actually began in Minnesota? It did. Um, never really thought about it much until my last year in Minnesota. Um, I always had a radio show that, you know, a Coombs Corner show um, in Minnesota for years. Um, while I was playing every Friday, we would do a Coombs Corner segment on our radio station. Um, and 
you know, it was, it was WCCO it's CBS property. And they, you know, our broadcaster and I were friends and um, I liked doing it, you know, and I, and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the idea of having a sponsor with it and, and getting to meet them and that whole selling of, of being involved in the whole part of that. I, I thought it was really cool. Um, and I'd always been in business for myself. So that was another way to be in business as a player. So the producer of Twins Baseball on TV ended up coming to me my last year. And he said, you know, when you retire from playing, would you ever consider coming on with us? And I just looked at him and I, I go, yeah, I, I absolutely I would. So I played three more years. I retired um, and I really wanted to manage. So I interviewed with the Twins and with the Yankees to manage in the minor leagues. It didn't go very well. It just wasn't a good time yet for me to do that. And not even two days later, John McDonough called and said there were positions available here in Chicago with the Cubs. Would I be interested? Um, my first interview was terrible with Comcast. Dan Plesek ended up getting that job for the pre and post. And I ended up working with Corey McFerrin on Fox doing the game of the week. Um, pre and post game shows and it worked out great and you know right after I signed with the Cubs the Twins called and said you know we'd like you to start working here and I did and I went from doing one one show a week with with the Twins I think in three weeks I was up to like I don't know 85 shows and you know thinking I was still going to manage but you know here we are 18 years later Georgie and um, I'm still sitting in that seat so I guess I'm going to be a broadcaster the rest of my career. I, it, it sounds like it to me. You know that fans like good analysis, uh, good analysts, and, and we've had some outstanding ones here, such yes. as Steve Stone, Eddie Olchek, Stacy King, Tom Thayer. Have you learned anything from them? And what's the toughest part of being an analyst, and what's the easiest? The toughest part for me when I came to Chicago was getting used to doing it on radio. Uh, my my initial. Um, work as a as a broadcaster was on tv with fox so um being able to analyze something that people are seeing in front of them and being able to use a teleprompter or you know draw lines and show people examples on the screen um was very beneficial especially for a new broadcaster and you could really explain on radio you've got to be descriptive right and you've got to be descriptive You've got to, they've got to understand what you're trying to communicate and you've got to be concise with your, with the amount of words you're using in a broadcast. And at that time, because Pat's got to call the play by play the very, you know, seconds later. So um, it was a little more difficult. Um, but then again, it, it forced you to think a little more about what you're trying to communicate. And I always try to get it to the point where you're almost teaching a little of, of what I'm trying to say or what, what I'm seeing at the ballpark. So there's a teaching element for kids or coaches or people that are in our community to really give them something to like, watch this, this is what's happening and here's why. So the how and the why to me always enter in um, to a lot of my descriptive um, words as an analyst, um, because I want people to understand our game and I wanna talk to them in words that they can understand and not talk over their head about hitting or certain aspects of our game. I want them to understand it and grasp it right away. 
Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949. And it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches. It also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Ron Coomer on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You and I have something in common. We mentioned his name earlier. It's... Jack Brickhouse when we were growing up only I would be going into this business because I had no business being an athlete myself uh, since I was basically knee high to an ant and weighed about as much but (laughs) that gives me a window into a young Ron Coomer with a gift for Gab so tell me a story I don't know about that time growing up on the south side first of all the Jack Brickhouse thing he just hearing his voice mesmerized me right away Um, the two things that him getting the Cubs, like doing the lineup and doing that, like just had my attention as a young kid. And then people singing the national anthem at Wrigley Field. I would always stand for the national anthem right in front of the TV as a little guy, right? Those are the two things I was like, well, you could hear the anthem, you know, the Cubs game's coming on. So that, those are the two things that got me. But Jack Brickhouse to me, you, there was something about him and his style that he was definitely a homer, but not so over the top. Um, but his, his appreciation for like just his call of Ernie Banks' 500th home run. Jarvis fires away. That's a fly ball deep the left. Back, back. That's it. That's it. Hey, hey. He did it. Ernie Banks got number 500. A line drive shot into the seats and left. The ball tossed to the bullpen. Everybody on your feet. This is it. I'll never forget it as a kid. I was watching the game. And every time I see it play over, whether we're at the ballpark or watching it on TV or hearing it, um, it instantly takes me back. And the other thing I, I just that just grabs me is how happy he is. Right, George? I mean, Jack, when he called that, like, he was just ecstatic oh, yeah. for Ernie Banks. You know, he started laughing a little bit after the original call, and he just, you could just see he was just... Distracted. But I can tell you this, having lived through the 1969 Cubs and doing a story about it several years ago, he was also extremely disconsolate 
as the Cubs were sliding, particularly in those series against the Mets when they had blown the eight and a half game lead. Yeah. So I remember Jack Brickhouse when he was happy, but I also remember Jack Brickhouse yeah. when he wasn't. We just have an example. So here, you know, I, I'm, I'm here in the house, you know, and we're all, you know, no, nobody's out and about like we, you know, like we used to be. So the Cubs 23-22 game was on a marquee. So I flip it on late night and the first inning was an absolute disaster. I was right? there. I was there. The score was seven to six after one. Right. So when you listen to the broadcast in the first inning, by the time the pitcher gets a base hit, it's a home run to lead off the game for the, the pitcher's spot. It wasn't Leach, was it? Fly ball left center. That's pretty well hit. Wow. Come on. A home run for the pitcher. Wow. Randy Lurch just had a line drive opposite field homer right in among the bleacher bums there in left center field. Oh boy. That makes it 7 0 as Randy Lurch crosses the plate. In the, the sound of Jack Brickhouse's voice of disgust and depression of what happened was <laughs> just there's a drive. It's gone. <laughs> the pitcher hit a. <laughs> and you're just like, it's like it's dripping his soul out of his body. It's just great. And then by the time Dave Kingman comes up in the top of the first, the Cubs have two men on. They've scored one run. And Kingman hits this up and away fastball so far out of Wrigley Field because the wind's howling out to left. He hits a ball so far out that Jack's call is it almost landed on the roof across the street. And all of a sudden, he drops a Woo-wee! You know, and, and you had the whole <laughs> gamut of, of emotion and expression in one inning at Wrigley Field. And I just, to me, I love that. I love that whole thing. I love that he was such a Cub fan and a fan of some of the guys on the team. And, and he would ride that, that wave. And I know I ride that same wave, you know, when we're doing games. There's no doubt. You know, I have to believe it's a real grind to be a minor league player, which you were for over eight years. Yeah, long and time. Had, and there had to be times where you simply wanted to chuck it. So tell me a story I don't know why you didn't and how you landed on the Twins at age 28. Right. So I was a good college player, very good college player. I played in Southern California, Central California in junior college baseball and um, had some very good years, but right the last game I played as a freshman in college, um, I tore my ACL. So when I get drafted the following year, I was always, you know, I was always kind of damaged goods, right? I had a torn ACL in my right knee when I signed and get drafted and um, had to always kind of um, show that I fit and show that I played. And I wasn't that first round pick because of my leg. And um, so through the years of playing, I always hit well enough and played well enough to move up the next level. But I don't think the Oakland A's ever really took it to heart that I would be their third baseman. I don't. And, you know, rightfully so. I, I was kind of damaged goods, but I just always, I always felt like I could play. And, and all I needed was a chance. And then um, there was a year in double A with the White Sox um, I was playing in Birmingham and um, uh, Mike Barnett was our, was our hitting coach. And uh, he got me going 
And from that day on, when I, I, I had a big day and he kind of got me straightened out hitting wise. And I felt like I could be a big league player. Okay. But there are times in the minor leagues, man, when you're, when you're traveling by bus and you know, your legs banged up and you're, you're not there. It's, it can really teach you, you know, the, the pity party thing and woe is me. And I think people that go through that period of minor league baseball and get through it and come out on the other side, um, I think have an unbelievable appreciation for what it takes to get to the big leagues. And then you don't give in when you get to the big leagues, you're going to grind through whatever you need to, to stay there. Cause you've already done it right. The hardest part is over. You did it in the minor leagues and a ball and double a by bus or getting up at three. So I, I always felt like I had an advantage when I got to the big leagues because of all the stuff that I went through in the minor leagues. When I got to the big leagues, I wasn't going back. No. And then four years later, you're standing in that line. You're an all-star. This is the stuff dreams are made of. From the Minnesota Twins, infielder Ron Coomer. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I remember being at home and I got a phone call saying I was going to be an all-star and I had already set a vacation to go to Northern Minnesota to a resort. And I'm like, um, really? I'm, I'm like, uh, don't mess with me. I've got vacation plans. You know, you're going to the all-star game. Now I was having a very good um, season. I was leading our team, I think in all three major categories back then. So it was good, but the all-star game was at Fenway park, the 99, uh, the all century team was there because it was 1999 and the American league captain that year, Carlton Fisk. Mm -hmm. So it's another one of those, you know, God wink moments where you're like, you know, I've been real fortunate, right? You just, you, you live life and, you know, and, and certain things happen in your favor um, at certain times. And I think that was one of them. That, that I was, was the playing year, well. Wasn't that the yeah. year that they, they uh, T Ted Williams was there? That was the. Ted Williams throughout the first pitch. That's oh, correct. that was, that was a moment frozen in time, especially happening in Fenway. Right. We all got to meet Ted. We all go up and, and meet him on the mound. Pudge is in dress clothes, catching the first pitch. Hmm and then goes back in real quick and changes into his Red Sox uniform. And he's our team captain. And, you know, him and I just had a moment. I mean, I was 20 years old hitting in his garage and in Homer Township, putting holes in his wall and having Linda get <laughs> pissed at us because clang, clang, clang on a Friday night, I missed the damn cage and there's a screen in front of me and there's a hole in his wall. You know, and, oh you know, and there's chewing tobacco going back then when we all chewed, you know, and it's just like, it was, you know, it was right out of that, that whole thing of, you know, you know, here's the, here's the hall of famer working with the kid right in the neighborhood that's got a chance. So you had the great fortune of playing with some hall of famers in Minnesota, yeah. but also, and I don't know if this is a fortune or a misfortune of playing in the Metrodome. Yes and yes. <laughs> How's that? Well, yes and yes. That question. Um, the great fortune. Um, I didn't think it was so great the first week of my big league career of being lockered next to Kirby Puckett. Um, after that first week, it was better. But Puck absolutely wore me out. He tells TK in our team meeting, TK, you believe this guy? He thinks he's from Chicago. He goes, I'm from South side of Chicago. 
Puck was the man. He was the, the captain of the team. He was 91, you know, hero of the World Series. And um, one of my great friends to this day is Paul Molitor. Paulie and I are golf buddies, and we've been friends since, you know, he signed with the Twins. Well, I can, I can tell you, when I first started working uh, professionally in Chicago, uh, one of my uh, assignments, and then I was a freelance, is I covered the Brewers. Uh, so this is Harvey's Wallbangers. We're talking yeah, about right. 79, 80, 81, 82. So I got to know Paul Molitor and he was really a first class guy. And you know, what yeah. a what a group of thumpers that was. That was one heck of a team. But not only you got to 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 meet Paul Molitor, but you followed a career that included him being a manager. Yeah, you know, Paulie, Paulie got to manage. He actually asked me to be on his staff at one time. It was the year after I'd come here to Chicago um, to broadcast. And I was like, we were out playing golf at my course right after the season. He goes, I'm going to get the manager's job at the Twins. I'm looking for staff. He goes, what's your interest? I go, Paulie, let me just tell you right now. I'm a yes. Any other time, but right now. I just signed a new deal to, to broadcast this past year. I was in Chicago. I go, I can't go to the Cubs after one year and tell them I'm out. I go, that's my childhood team, man. I go, I, I don't have that in me. I don't want to be excommunicated from my childhood team because I bolted after one year. You know, you do talk about the Cubs with great love. So I have to believe when you talk about pinching yourself, how about playing for them? Yeah. That, the very first morning of free agency at nine o'clock in the morning, I get a ring of the doorbell at my house in Minnesota and it's, it's a you know, courier service and it's a contract from Andy McPhail, a one year with a bonus if I wanted the two years, but a contract from the Cubs for what I made the year before with the twins, which was fine. And I just was like my jock. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, seriously, the first morning, so I open it up, I'm reading through it, you know, and I'm like shaky, to be honest with you. And I call my dad and my dad's just as excited as I am. And he drops uh, as a good South Sider. He goes, don't this up, sign it. <laughs> and he, I, I, you know, I go, dad, it doesn't work that way. We got a negotiated deal. He goes, don't screw this up, sign the contract, come home and play for the Cubs. That's the only thing you've ever wanted to do. So I, you know, after a couple of days of negotiating with Andy McPhail, I signed the deal and I was a Cub. So I was a free agent for probably, realistically, probably about 10 minutes. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's Hot Dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill? Then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. 
Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, socks and cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has Farm Acres Chili, Mini Bagel Dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. You began a baseball academy in Orland Park called Swingtown, which you eventually sold. Tell me a story I don't know, why you established it, and how did it fare? Um, it fared very well. We were, we were the, the originators of a lot of this stuff that you see now, all these academies around the Chicagoland area. Um, my deal was um, I, I was working out with Carlton Fisk for years in his garage, and we would hit. We really had nowhere to go to hit other than him doing flips and hitting off the tee in his garage. And after a couple of years of that, you know, he's like, we got to go somewhere. Eric Soderholm on the South side had a cage in his garage or in his house. Um, there was a place in Joliet, Illinois that had one cage and it was old and beat up and balls are flying through it. So that wasn't very good. And uh, so, but we found places to hit him and I, and then finally I started teaching. I needed to make money. I was a minor league kid started to make, you know, give some lessons myself and needed a place to, to try to find where we could do it. And um, finally, I just started thinking about it and I go, you got to do this. And the more I taught, the better I got as a hitter. And so I, I you know, you start, you start teaching and you start trying to figure out other people's problems with their swing and kids. And, and I love the whole teaching aspect of it. And I still do. Um, so it just lent myself to being in business. It did. And, and uh, I started looking into how much machines cost and kind of what I, what I needed for um, capital to start. And I went to some family and some friends and did that. And I went to some spaces in that Southwest suburbs and Orland Park had a light industrial park. It just fit. So I put cages in and I started teaching and we, you know, me and another partner, we just started doing it and it, it, um, it took off. I mean, we were up to, you know, over a million dollars of, of revenue a year. And, and those are terms that to me, I just couldn't believe that you could do that in that business, but that's how you judge whether the business wins or not, right. By, by numbers. So I love the whole idea, George, of teaching, uh, teaching, hitting, teaching infield play, the how and why of what you do. And, you know, really between my high school baseball coaches um, and Carlton Fisk, Jimmy Hall and Clyde Odell and Carlton Fisk, those are the three guys that, you know, really had a major impact on me playing, but then also starting this facility and, and teaching kids. Well, let's talk about uh, another business you were in, which means it's time to talk food because Coombs <laughs> Corner in Lockport is the place to go. And I appeared at the website and I saw a burger that would take three of me to eat. <laughs> That's true. Yep. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so Coombs Corner came about. Um, I looked at opening a restaurant at the new ballpark in Minneapolis um, and didn't work out. We couldn't get a real estate deal done. 
But then um, some ex-teammates and, and some people in town who are all buddies called me a few years back and said, hey, there's a space open in town in Lockport. Um, we're thinking of buying the, the space out. And it was a current, kind of more of a bar than it was a restaurant. But, you know, it was a substantial space with some banquet areas. And, and I said, you know, would you be interested in jumping in with us and putting your name on it? And, you know, they're, they're buddies of mine. I've known them since we were 14, 15. I said, yeah, I, I, I would consider it. So then we really started doing our due diligence in the business world of, of the restaurant side. And there were some pluses, some minuses to it. But I've always been intrigued by that business and, and trying to do that because I always felt like it's something that you could have fun with and also have an impact on the community. Um, so I did it. We jumped in and, you know, we're um, four and a half years now. I think, and uh, it's gone very well. It's fun. I love, you know, on Little League nights where you see the kids come filing in off the field all dirty in their uniform and, you know, grabbing slices of pizza and running through the building and see kids slide and, you know, and I just, you know, think of being back with my dad on the south side of the city and little Vince's Pizza Place, our little local spot, and me running through there and sliding on the floor or, and now I've got a place that kids do that. And, you know, it's a great community business to, uh, to give back a little bit, but, but also to, to be a businessman in town and be able to, to do some fun. I've, my dad taught me that as a young kid. He always was a hard blue-collar worker and always had some little side business. So I guess that's where I got it from. You know, I've known you for a pretty good period of time. You yeah. are definitely no shrinking violet. I know this from interviews with you. You have opinions and are more than willing yep. to share them. So tell me a story I don't know about baseball today, which includes the ideas minor league uh, baseball is implementing, such as wider bases, mm -hmm. balls and strikes, not by an umpire, outlawing the shift, and something currently in the majors having a reliever pitch to at least three batters. Some of the rules I'm okay with, some I'm not. The base being bigger, that's fine. You know, that's a safety thing. I, I'm okay with that. Um, the three batter rule for the reliever, I, I just think has been a total flop, to be quite honest. It's not saving any time, and that's the sole purpose for it. And what you're doing is you're taking the ability for a manager to be able to mix and match um, with his bullpen in a game. So you're taking some strategy away, and you're taking, you know, you know, if a young kid comes into the game and he's nervous as hell and he can't throw a strike, he's got to face three guys. So now he doesn't get to play a lot of times because the manager goes, I just can't trust them in this spot, even though he might be one of the last guys. So I, I don't, I don't like that rule. I don't like taking the, the strategy out of the hands of the manager and giving it to the commissioner's office. To me, that's a bad, bad thing. They're not baseball people. They're not. And they're they're They don't deserve to have the right to take that away from the manager. Even if they're getting input from like a Joe Torre, who I have the most unbelievable respect for and played for. But some of these rules, I just shake my head and go, this isn't a baseball guy making these decisions. Um, them saying like, even right now, that the DH could even be put into play here, right? There wasn't their story just the other day that the DH could be put in. I mean, it just seems like they're, the thought of, of what they're doing um, with the commissioner's office is not thought through enough of really what it's going to do on the field. I just, you know, 
We in were other words, way it's, late it, to in the other game. words, it's more about trying to speed up the game and maybe trying to make the game uh, more popular for a younger generation that doesn't like to sit still. Yeah, but, but we're not doing anything better for the game, mm-hmm. right? To to put teams to say right there at the end here before we start or whenever you're going to start the season and say we still might implement the DH. Well, everybody's been signed. The whole the whole season is basically going to go, and now you're going to change the rules. We've had technology uh, in baseball, and I think some of it's yeah. pretty good. But what about technology when it comes to balls and strikes? I have mixed feelings about it. I. I hate the idea of taking the human element away from the, the umpires behind the plate because I love the interaction. I always did as a third baseman or first baseman, the interaction with the umpires. And I think they do a really good job, but they do miss some pitches. And when they, when they're having a tough night, and I'm in the booth. I say so. Um, I don't make it personal, but you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, but I think we're going that way. Right think you're going to have an umpire behind home plate, but the ball's going to be called by a computer, right? By a screen and not a fan. I, I, I like the human element the best you can, but I do like the replay. I, I like the old school, the old fashioned, you know, guy calling balls and strikes and, you know, the, the give and take with the catcher and all that stuff. That's fun stuff. That's where we tell stories. That's what that's all about, right? I have to believe, Ron, this is it. You, this is where you want to be for the rest of your career, in that broadcast booth. No doubt. I'm not looking to go anywhere. Um, as long as the Cubs want to keep me in the radio booth next to Pat, I am good. I, I would love to retire a Chicago Cub broadcaster and working with the Cubs. And then, you know, my boss, Mitch Rosen, has been great to work for. Um, all Everybody's been... I've had nothing but great experiences with, with Mitch and Crane. Um, they've just been phenomenal to me. And, and to, to call Wrigley Field my office, I mean, I've been going there since I think the first game I went to, I was four years old. Um, and I hope the last game I ever go to, it's Wrigley Field and I'm sitting, sitting in the booth too. That'd be great too. I got no problem. Um, but I'm not looking to go anywhere. This is, you know, this is right where I want to be. And I'm happy and content in life with life in Chicago, I'm a Chicagoan, right? You know, um, going to Wrigley Field, having some pizza and, and hanging out with my friends and being at Wrigley Field, you know, what more do you want, right? I ask this final question to all my guests. If not for baseball and sports, Ron, what would you have been? History teacher. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I thought when I was, when I started going to college, um, my big thing um, John Johnson was a teacher I had at Lockport and he was a stitch, right? And he was this dry sense of humor. He was the B freshman B team baseball coach at Lockport. So basically he was just getting a check. And I always remind him of that. You weren't a baseball coach. You were getting a check and you, they needed somebody to do that job. So that's why you did it. But he was a great history teacher. And I've always been infatuated with history and, and, and going from city to city and, looking at that city's history or our nation's history, depending on where you go. And um, I've always had this thing about teaching, right? As a hitter and a hitting coach and things like that. So I'd have probably gotten into business because of my dad, but I'd have been a history teacher and um, hopefully a coach, you know, even if I couldn't play. Thank you, Ron Coomer, for telling me a story I don't know. 
My thanks to WSCR The Score, WGN-TV, and CBS-TV for those wonderful highlights. And big thanks to TJ Reeves, who worked diligently behind the scenes to put this podcast on the map. Will Hatzel, whose deft editing makes this podcast sound a whole lot better. And T.T. Schinken, whose graphics are an artistic delight. And thanks again to our sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market for their generous support. Join me next time for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 support your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.